the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll have Detroit Regional Chamber CEO Sandy Barulo with us today following the release of the Chamber's State of the Region report, which focuses in on mass transit and other issues. Can Metro Detroit finally move forward after years of failed attacks? And we'll talk with a lawyer for Trayvon Martin's family who's in Michigan this week rallying against environmental racism. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after this news from NPR. It's Stephen Henderson here on 1019 WDET, and this is Detroit Today, our daily chance to talk about issues and challenges and inspirations here in Detroit and Southeast Michigan, in Michigan, and across the nation. Yesterday on the show, you may have heard my rather tense back and forth with Macomb County Executive Mark Hackle. We were debating the need for a robust and fully funded regional transit authority that would connect all of Southeast Michigan. Now, Wayne, Oakland, and Washtenaw counties are all moving forward on that issue together. They are trying to get a ballot initiative ready for 2020. But Macomb County, the county that narrowly defeated the last attempt to fund regional transit, is going to sit this round out. So what does that mean for regional cooperation moving forward? Yesterday, the Detroit Regional Chamber released its annual State of the Region report. It shows the region is doing well in a lot of areas, but there is still a lot of work to do. And surprise, surprise, transit is one of those areas where the region lags really far behind most other major metropolitan areas. That's where we want to begin the conversation today with the Chamber's State of the Region report. And joining us for that conversation is Sandy Barua, who is the CEO of the Detroit Regional Chamber. Sandy, welcome back to Great Detroit Today. Great to be with you, my friend. Yeah. So let's start with the key takeaways from this year's State of the Region report. So I think there's three key takeaways that uh, we should all know. First of all, uh, we have a lot of wins to celebrate. I think if we go back in time 10 years ago, and if we, any one of us had predicted that Detroit, uh, the city, the region, and frankly, the state would be in the position where we are now, where we're just basically a little over one percentage point above the national average in unemployment, that our household incomes have grown by over 32 percent uh, in the past five years, uh, that the automotive industry had come roaring back as, as well as it has, uh, that our governmental leadership, both at the city level, county level, and state level, uh, has been as solid as it has been. Uh, I think we would all said to each other that, no, you're crazy. You know, you know we're not going to make that much progress, but but we have. So that that's that's number one. Uh, number two is that uh, we are not progressing as fast. Uh, we're not making as much progress in the last two years than we were in the previous three to four behind that. There's so, a little bit of a slowdown. A little bit of a slowdown. Now, uh, the nationally, we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown in some sectors, but uh, in this region, we're seeing we're seeing that plus uh, a couple others. We're still growing. Let, let, you know, Make no mistake, this is still a positive picture, but we're not growing as fast as some of our peers in some national numbers. And thirdly, uh, and this is an area you and I have talked a lot about, we have persistent systemic challenges in this region that we have to address. There are not enough people uh, in our region that are enjoying the economic prosperity that so much, so many of us are fortunate uh, to share in, and our region will not be successful, our city will not be successful until we crack that code. Yeah. Um, talk about the slowdown that, you, that we're seeing and why, I guess, it's happening and what we ought to be doing to prepare for. I mean, some of this is cyclical, right? That You don't always grow at the fastest rate. But I always feel like regions that are, are smart about these kind of things have plans for when things are not you know, rocketing forward. Right. So there's a couple reasons. So uh, number one is that uh, this region and this state, frankly, hit so much of a trough 
uh, during and after the Great Recession that was more pronounced than the rest of the country. And I know that because I was working at the national level during that time. And, and you know, it was clear that Michigan was hurting more than the rest of the nation. Not that the rest of the nation was fine and dandy, but it was, it was worse here. I mean, just take a look at the unemployment rate in the Detroit region at the height of the Great Recession mm-hmm. was almost 18%. That's the official number, let alone what the unofficial number was. And that was about eight percentage points above where the national average was at that time. So that tells you how bad things were here. So we had, uh, we, since we had a greater depth to crawl up from, we were able to make some fast gains you know, early uh, in the out years after the Great Recession. Number two, we're also uh, being adversely impacted by some national policies that are having a disproportionate impact on Michigan and the region. Um, so let's talk about transit. Um, I had a conversation, as I said, in the open with Macomb County Executive Mark Hackle yesterday. It was tense at times, but it was clear from that conversation that we still have a real divide in this region. And, and I, and I want to be really specific about what I think that divide is. Hackle was talking about how the biggest problem he sees is still the opt-out communities in SMART, that Wayne and Oakland have a lot of places that have decided they don't want to be part of SMART. And he believes that if they were, we could build the regional transit system that we all think we should have and and all want. And he, he is unwilling to, at the same time, consider funding a, yet another regional transit initiative, uh, taxing people twice, I guess, for for transit. There is this sense, I think, if you talk to people who are not in favor of expanding regional transit, that what we have now, the, the, the pieces that we have now are enough and that if we just made them work better, we would all be fine. I, I want you to sort of address whether you think that is a uh, a, a good way to start the conversation, or does that leave us short of the ambitions that we might have to be like other regions? Yeah. So uh, several things can be true at the same time. So number one, uh, our current access to public transit for the citizens of this region is completely inadequate, and we need to do better. Right now, uh, of major metropolitan areas across the country, we're the worst. Certainly, we can and should do better. So let's start that as a baseline. Second thing, uh, you know, there are people who are just against regional transit, period. Mark Hackle is not one of them. I mean, when you look at what uh, Mark has done, one, Macomb County doesn't have any opt-out there are communities, no opt-outs, that's right? right? So he, you know, in that way, he's actually, you know, forward-leaning compared to, you know, some other uh, regional areas. Secondly, he is a strong, strong, strong proponent of the smart system. And, you know, Mark and I, you know, at the end of the day, we agree on some things and we disagree on some things, right? But, but you know, we always, uh, I consider him a good friend. What Mark is concerned about is a handful of things. One is the issue that you mentioned, you know, the other areas that have have opt-outs. Secondly, having two systems. Now, I think the new agreement between the mayor and Washtenaw County and Wayne County, uh, I think will address that because I think the thing that we all agree on is that we'd be better off with one unified system as opposed to multiple systems. So I completely agree with Mark on that. The other thing that uh, Mark is uh, really focused on is the condition of the roads in Macomb County uh, is probably the worst in our tri-county area. Uh, Regardless what we do with regional transit, uh, he's got a a community of commuters that are going to be in their cars. That's his number one uh, kind of infrastructure priority. And if I'm Macomb County, I I don't blame him for that. Uh, and I'd say the other reason is that uh, Macomb County has a lot of mid-sized businesses. And mid-sized businesses, especially if they take up a lot of land, are disproportionately impacted by uh, an increase in the millage for, uh, for regional transit. And uh, all of those things, like you say, are true, but he stopped short of endorsing this, this idea that Wayne and Oakland and now Washington have of taking another bite at something even bigger than what we have now. And I think there's a legitimate question about whether uh, whether SMART, fully funded and with no opt-outs and, and DDOT, could be merged into a system that would, that would do better. 
But I don't think there's any question about the fact that Smart and DDOT, as they are configured and funded right now, leave humongous gaps. And, and it makes it really hard for people, especially people who live in one county and work in another, to get around. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, you know, again, I, you know, that's why I started with the premise that, you know, our current state is, is, is unacceptable and we have to do better. The, the reason why the Detroit Regional Chamber cares about this, I mean, look, we're an organization that represents businesses. We represent businesses in 11 counties, including 11 Fortune 500 headquarters, right? So we care about this because the best way to make companies that are based in our region, large and small, and the people in our region prosperous is to allow people mobility. The allow people the ability to move around to be able to make money and spend money. Right now, we are completely dependent upon people owning cars. There's a problem with that. One, even though we are the Motor City and we're proud of being the Motor City, uh, in the city of Detroit, over a third of all residents, people, have no access to private transportation. In other words, they don't own a car, they don't own, have a close relative that owns a car or has, you know, that they have access to, uh, and that's a problem. Uh, you know, and while Lyft and Uber work great in downtown and Corktown and Midtown, uh, you know, and uh, up in the suburbs, doesn't work, frankly, almost at all in, in some of the Detroit neighborhoods. Yeah. And it's also quite expensive comparatively. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of this effort then that Wayne, Oakland, and Washtenaw say they're going to put together to fund regional transit next year? Does it work if Macomb is not part of the effort? Yes. It, it, I Listen, I one of the things that uh, Brad Williams, who's our vice president of government affairs, and I have, have talked about uh, internally and uh, with key external stakeholders is that we have to start somewhere. Because let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the better, right? So we believe that if we can start with, you know, two counties, three counties, as you know, as we're potentially we are now, and if we can build that system out, we can make improvements, people will see that it's working, then I think people will want to buy into it. I mean, I just, you know, uh, you and I have, uh, you know, pretty extensive Washington, D.C. experience. We saw how, you know, the metro system got built out over time and how more areas started to demand it. Of course, that was built out during a time when, you know, the federal government had there money to spend. There was federal money for yeah, it, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So there's less federal money now. Uh, it, I mean, our region would have been so much better off had we done this in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Sandy Barua, the CEO of the Detroit Regional Chamber, which released its annual State of the Region report yesterday. We're talking about that report and its focus on a number of different issues, uh, but especially transit, uh, the thing that has befuddled us here in southeast Michigan for many, many decades. Uh, Wayne, Oakland, and Washtenaw counties say they are going to take another bite at uh, the Apple with a bigger regional transit effort. Macomb County has said it will sit out at least for this round. What do you think about the idea of Southeast Michigan competing with other major metropolitan areas across the country to attract talent, investment, and new residents if we don't invest in mass transit. What do you think of Macomb County's unwillingness to work with Wayne, Oakland, and Washtenaw this time to create this robust regional transit system? And are you willing to pay more for better transit? This is the brass tax question, I believe. How much more would you be willing to pay if we could make sure that uh, there were bus services and maybe a little rail here and there to get people around a lot better? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, what's on your mind? Good morning. Hey. Uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to get the guest to answer for, answer for Mark Hackle, but what I was confused about, and I, I could tell he interacts with him enough to where he may be able to answer this. Mark was talking about he didn't feel like Macomb County should have to pay twice as much as everybody else if we start a unified system. And so what I'm wondering is, you know, say, for instance, if everybody's got to put in $5 now, is he saying that he don't want to put in $5 because we already had been putting in and other people hadn't been? Or is he saying that 
uh, uh, that he only wants to put in the amount that everybody else is putting in. And the other part of it is is that he's right. We should have had a unified system probably back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what held it up other than uh, uh, corruption or, or greed or just uh, – you know, discrimination or racism or whatever, but there's no reason why we should be in this close proximity and not have a unified system. I work for the Department of Transportation. I'm a 33-year employee mm. here, mm. Uh, and it does not make sense. But what I, uh, you my work, last point is, the you work governor, for DDOT, right? Aaron? Yes, yeah. The governor should not have allowed certain cities to say we don't want transportation to stop in our city that should not have been allowed yeah the opt-out is is a is a huge barrier and 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 has been i I, i'm going to try to answer your question about what mark was saying yesterday and and obviously i'll preface it with the with the idea that i don't know what exactly is in Mark's head, but but I did have that conversation with him. I think what his objection was, was that we're already paying, or Macomb County residents are already paying into the SMART system, and that this new millage would add on to it. And it wouldn't just be Macomb that would do it. Obviously, in Wayne, we would also be paying for DDOT and the new system as well. And in Oakland, they would be paying for SMART and this new system as well. So it's not that Macomb County was somehow singled out for that. I think his objection is to the very idea of paying for not not just one system, but but two. And it, look, I, I think that's a, a very reasonable objection. And I, I, lots of people who support better transit also have that objection. But as Sandy was just saying, let's not make uh, the perfect the enemy of of the of the better. Uh, if we can do better with transit, um, I, I think we can we can have that conversation about making the systems one uh, later. So, Aaron, I appreciate the call and the questions. Uh, let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Hey, good- Good morning. In the spirit of Sandy, you know, the things you can have things that are both wrong and right at the same time. Um, I do agree with Sandy that starting somewhere is is um, it needs to happen. So I'm glad that Washington, Oakland and Wayne are, are wanting to move forward. But I, I'm bugged by Macomb's um, Macomb County. Uh, Macomb County has um, the blessings of prosperity because of the defense industry, auto as well, but the defense industry plays so big there. And um, that's taxpayer money. I mean, I, I just feel like that community ought to want to give back in a bigger way. Hmm. And I do know that people commute there, they drive their cars, but I do think if people experienced a city that had good mass transit, um, they would appreciate it more. Yeah. That, uh, that's uh, that's a great point, Terry. I'm glad you called uh, and made it. You know this this idea that Macomb is sort of singling itself out in the region. I think is is significant in the sense that we still have these huge barriers to the idea of of our leaders thinking of themselves as part of a whole. Right? Uh, they do it in some cases. They do it in more cases now than they probably did 10 or 20 years ago. But this is a good example of Macomb thinking, well, here's what's best for us. And maybe that leaves us out of the regional conversation uh, and, le- and regional policy. Yeah. Stephen, I can probably add a little bit to that. So, you know, uh, one thing I, I appreciate Terry's call um, that I might differ a little bit with her perspective on is you know, Macomb County has been a strong advocate for uh, the DIA. And the millage there. I mean, they were. Uh, I mean, up front and center yep. uh, you know, with the DIA. They have. Uh, they have again, as I mentioned earlier, been incredibly strong supporters of of the smart system. Uh, and uh, you know, Mark uh, Hackle has had, I would say, probably the best relationship with his counterparts across the region uh, than any other one individual 
um, leader. I mean, I think he's got he's got a great relationship with Mayor Duggan and Executive Warren Evans. He had a great relationship with with Brooks Patterson. Uh, I know that uh, Dave Coulter in Oakland County uh, has already hosted uh, all uh, all four of them at a private dinner in his home that went you know swimmingly well. So the relationship between the four has probably never been better. So I, you know, I listen. I know all of us who promote regional transit kind of wish that Macomb County were in right now, but I don't think in any way that precludes Macomb County from being in at some later date. So let's not let you know uh, Macomb County's current position, which you know I understand. I may end up disagreeing with it at the end of the day, but I respect it. Uh, you know you know, move us off, you know, where we are now, which is, you know, enough organizations want to take the next step. And that's a good thing. Okay. Sandy Barua, CEO of the Detroit Regional Chamber. Always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Up next, we're going to hear from the attorney for the families of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. He is going to be in Flint this weekend for an environmental justice rally just days after being sued by George Zimmerman for defamation. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump joins the show next. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. George Zimmerman, the man who was acquitted by a jury after he killed black teenager Drayvon Martin in 2013, is suing Martin's family and its attorney, Benjamin Crump. Zimmerman says they have conspired against him and defamed him to the point of ruining his life. Crump is the author of a book titled Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People, and he's in Michigan for rallies in Flint this weekend to bring attention to the environmental racism that he sees. Crump spoke with WDET's Jake Neer about the rallies, as well as Zimmerman's lawsuit against him. Benjamin Crump, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Jake, and covering these important matters that need not be forgotten. Well, uh, of course, you represent the families of both uh, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, uh, two young black men who were killed under controversial circumstances, to say the least. Um, now, George Zimmerman is suing you and Trayvon Martin's family for defamation and for conspiring against him. I'm curious, uh, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Other than the fact that it's a frivolous lawsuit that we don't want to give any attention to, we rather spend our time on very important legal matters like here in Flint, Michigan, where, you know, people have been poisoned and that it is very important that we have legal redress for that, not for somebody who's uh, seeking attention for whatever reason uh, in the most horrific ways. Uh, Obviously, it's very personal because I'm very close to Trayvon Martin's parents, Tracy and Sabrina, And uh, we have a lot to say, but we think that we do not want to give any attention to this completely uh, asinine pleading. Mm. Talk about your work representing these families and how it relates to combating racial inequity, generally speaking. Absolutely. You know, my hero was Thurgood Marshall. And Justice Marshall understood, I think, like many people of moral character, that we cannot let the enemies of equality continue to disenfranchise, marginalize, and dehumanize uh, poor people and especially people of color. What we have to do is try to make the American dream and the American uh, promise accessible to all people. It shouldn't matter what your zip code is. It should not matter your ethnicity or, you know, your sexual preference or what who you choose to worship. If you're born as an American citizen, just by drawing your first breath as an American, then the Constitution belongs to you. And that's what is so important that we don't forget about Flint, Michigan. And what breaks my heart is whether it's fighting uh, for the lives of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, 12-year-old Tamir Rice, 
Botham Jones. Uh, the list just goes on and on. Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, uh, Sandra Bland. It's no different than fighting for the lives of the young people in Flint who the science tells us are going to be affected by this legalized genocide when the laws that are supposed to protect us are in a way being used to kill us because nobody's been held accountable for our children's lives and their future and their opportunities at being able to live out the fulfillment of their destiny that God has for them and have an opportunity at the American dream that's equal to anybody else. And when we think about Flint, had this happened in a more affluent community, a more whiter community, it would be a national catastrophe. I mean, lightning would strike, uh, thunder would roll, and heads would roll. But because it's a poor majority, minority community, it's almost as if their lives really don't matter that much. Their children' brain development isn't really that important. And so we have to object to that and say, no, that's not America. America, we're better than that. And so whether I'm uh, uh, talking about the issues in my book, we're trying to hold a mirror to America's face to say we can do better, or whether when we're at the rally on Saturday and Sunday in Flint, Michigan, uh, we're going to be talking to the community to say, yeah, we can do better together. We cannot let America forget about the tragedy that happened in Flint, and especially to uh, people of color who are so distrusting of the legal system, and they have every right to be, Jake, but to tell them that our children matter too much not to make sure that they have competent representation and fair compensation because the science has told us that there are going to be long-term effects on their brains because of this poisoning that happened, I believe, willfully and wanton by the people who were supposed to be looking out for them. To talk about to these two things here, the one-on-one individual violence, uh, physical violence uh, against people of color in this country, something that you are known for in your, in your uh, cases representing these two families, and the systematic violence toward people of color. There are some people that might see those as two different things. I suspect you see those as part of the same thing. Certainly, and it is very interesting because uh, – Jake, that's the case I make in my book, Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. And I I remember one of the main reasons that I wrote the book, even though HarperCollins had been asking me for a couple of years to pen uh, the book, I I didn't want to just write a book to write a book. I only wanted to write a book that I felt needed to be written. And when I was in Ferguson, Missouri, in the aftermath of the killing of Michael Brown, the 18-year-old unarmed uh, black teen who the police officer killed in broad daylight, uh, 14 eyewitnesses said his hands was up. And that's when the uh, clarion call, hands up, don't shoot, went worldwide. And you had the Ferguson uprising where the young people, the Black Lives Ma- activists, the Black Lives Matter activists, uh, and all these young people, it wasn't just black people, it were uh, white college students, Hispanic college students out there, and they refused to remain silent. They refused to let them sweep Michael Brown's death under the rug. And I remember specifically, there was this young man uh, who was out there, and he was fearless. The governor had called in the National Guard, and they came in with all their military gear and uh, uh, assault rifles, uh, and it was almost as if they were declaring war on an American city. It was unbelievable to see. But this young man walked right up to the uh, National Guard who had their assault rifles trained on him, center mass, and he walked where his face was practically touching the tip of the assault rifle, and he was yelling while all of us were out there, 
And uh, he said, go ahead and kill me now while all the cameras and everybody can see because y'all are going to kill us anyway when the cameras go away. So kill us now so the world can see how you all are killing us. And I remember thinking, he's right. It is important for the world to see how they're killing us, but not just how they're killing us with uh, these bullets from these high-profile police shootings, but more poignantly, how they're killing us every day in every city, in every state, in every courtroom in America with these trumped-up felony convictions. Uh, And it's not so much just the trumped-up felony convictions. It's also all these myriad of other ways they're killing us when they legalize or sanitize the injustices. Uh, I, I remember, in trying to answer your question in a, a roundabout way, when I go give these speeches, I talk about Ben Franklin's quote. When Ben Franklin says democracy is like two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. You know, Jake, mm-hmm. you're a smart guy. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how that is going to turn out. The concept of tyranny of the majority. Exactly. And so Ben Franklin says, but liberty is making sure that that lamb is well armed to protest that vote. And so what we have to do is make sure young lambs in communities of color are well armed to protest the school to prison pipeline, that they're well armed to protest voter suppression, that they're well armed to protest environmental racism, where we would see children living in South Central Los Angeles have a third of the lung capacity as children living in Santa Monica, California, because we make it legal for these toxic, polluting, poisonous uh, factories to exist within breathing space of where our children live and go to school and play every day. Uh, We have to make sure that we're armed to protest the racist Jim Crow laws like Stand Your Ground. We have to make sure they're well armed to protest the prison industrial complex that would see when you're a black person go to prison, it's different. When you're a brown person, go to prison. It's different in many regards than when white people go to prison because, you know, most people when they go to prison or jail, they only worry about losing their constitutional rights. But when minorities, especially women of color, go to prison, not only do they have to worry about losing their constitutional rights, but Jake, they also have to worry about losing their reproductive rights. As late as 2014 in the state of California, you have documentation of where black women and Hispanic women are being coerced into forced sterilization. And so when you look at the individual cases, how they're killing us, and you look at the systematic ways they're killing us, to me, if you're the person getting killed, it's all the same. And that's what we're trying to teach our young people. They Whether they kill you with a bullet or whether they kill you softly with a felony conviction or slowly with environmental racism like they're doing in Flint, it's still death. And we have to stand up and scream from the top of the mountain that our children's lives matter, that Flint matters, that we have to make sure that everybody is held accountable and that these children are cared for. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, and I'm speaking with Benjamin Crump. He's a civil rights attorney and author of a new book called Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People. He's in Michigan to kick off a nationwide campaign to bring attention to more than a million Americans who do not have access to clean drinking water. He's also known as an attorney who represented the families of both Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. You mentioned environmental racism a couple times in that. Uh, Here in Detroit, we have one of the most polluted zip codes in the entire country in southwest Detroit. Uh, And this is something that you're really focusing now. That's one of the reasons you're here in Michigan 
talk about your concentration right now on environmental concerns and how they relate to racism and uh, how that's going to play out in this rally in Flint uh, this week. Yeah, it's really profound when you think about it. Um, as bad as the killing of, you know, uh, Botham John was, as bad as the killing of Laquan McDonald, as bad as the killing of uh, Eric Gardner, as bad as all these killings, in many ways, environmental racism is far worse than police brutality or any of these other individualized killings because environmental racism is generational. I mean, it not only affects you, but it affects your children. And it can affect your children's children. And so when you look at the horrible statistics that the number of Americans living near facilities that store, process, hazardous chemicals, it's so disproportionate. I mean, with black people, it's 75% higher than the general population. With uh, Latino community, it's 60% higher. And so I say that to say that it always appears that no matter what the situation is, Jake, poor people of color always get the most of injustice and the least of justice. And so whatever blessings, whatever education, whatever influence that God has blessed me with, I want to try to bring attention not just to these uh, cases where the police uh, are racist and, you know, um, profiling us and kill us, but also where the powers that be that are far far more calculating than police uh, profile us and uh, discriminate against us and in many ways commit a, a legalized genocide against us because when they allow these polluters to exist and then the local governments and the state governments and the federal governments work in concert with them to sanitize their conduct, In a way, they're condoning it. They're being co-conspirators. In the law, we would call it aiding and abetting. And so why is it that when something like this happens, uh, or some uh, little poor person of color in America are charged with aiding and abetting, they throw the book at them, and they may not have committed violence against anybody. It may be something as, in my mind, trivial as selling a a bag of marijuana versus when you look at this here, it's far more horrific, but yet nothing happens to them. I bring up the point about selling marijuana because if you really want to illustrate the, the just blatant, vivid racism and discrimination, you only have to go to this fake war on drugs. That really was a way of criminalizing and populating the prison industrial complex with uh, poor people of color, what I call uh, younger, stronger slaves. And it had to do with when you think about what the prosecutors and what the police said over and over again uh, about this war on drugs when you had poor people of color uh, being charged, even though you had little white boys and girls doing the same thing, a lot of times they got slaps on the wrist. But when these black children and these brown children and young people would sell drugs, they would always say, we got to lock them up and we got to throw away the key. Let's lock them up and throw away the key. We got to be hard on crime. That's what they kept saying, because we got to send a message. We got to send a message. That's what they kept saying, because they poisoning the community. And that's what they kept saying. And then we come to Flint, Michigan, where they actually did poison the community. And how many people go to jail? Zero. And you got tens of thousands of poor 
black and brown people sitting in prison for 10, 20, sometimes life in prison for selling marijuana, the same marijuana that has been legalized now in most states in America. And so you now have white men and the government who are going to make billions and billions of dollars from selling marijuana, where when you have black people selling marijuana, brown people, I I guess what you essentially have is the American government now is going to be making money from selling weed so they can pay their bills. But when you have black and brown people uh, making money from selling weed to pay their bills, they put all of us in prison. And so what we are saying is objection. You can't make a profit, America, for selling marijuana until you let all these black people and these brown people and any other people out of prison for selling marijuana because it's just hypocrisy. It's just racism and it's discriminatory that you all now get to make billions of dollars but yet, when black and brown people were just trying to survive and pay their bills, doing exactly what you're doing now, you call them criminals. Hmm. That's a big issue in Michigan right now. We just legalized marijuana as a state, and uh, part of the conversation is now, should we go back and expunge the records of people who've been convicted? Uh, and that is a huge conversation right now at the state capitol here in Detroit, uh, a city that has um, for now said no to legalized marijuana retail stores. Uh, Part of the conversation there is carving out uh, space for people to get into that market here in Detroit who've been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. So that's a conversation that's very pertinent locally here. Um, I just wanted to end with you uh, describing if uh, people come out to this rally in Flint, what can they expect to see? Well, what they can expect is to have a very engaging in personal conversation about how we have to stand up for our children, how we have to speak up for our children, and how we have to fight for our children because they're our children, and if we're not willing to stand up for our children in our community, nobody else is going to be willing to stand up for them. And we're going to also offer them opportunities to get tested to see if – uh, their children were affected by the lead poisoning. Also, we're going to talk to them about why they have to be engaged in the process. There are still 8,000 children and 40,000 adults that don't have legal representation that hasn't brought forth a claim. And what you don't want them to do is to get left behind. Uh, because what the science tells us is this is real. And so what I'm going to be talking to them, and, and I grew up in a, a community much like Flint. We were probably far uh, poor, had less resources than Flint, in Lumberton, North Carolina, by a single mother raising three boys living in the projects. So I can relate uh, to what many of them go to when they say it's about trying to keep food on the table. It's trying to keep a roof over your head. It's trying to keep lights on uh, and heat in this cold weather. But it's also about giving your children hope for the future. Not only putting food in their stomach, but putting hope in their heart and education in their minds. And so this starts with acknowledging that we have a serious issue we have to deal with over the lead poisoning in Flint and that we have to make sure that our children do have competent representation and they get fair compensation because it may make a world of difference of whether they're even able to uh, learn in the future and deal with these issues that they might not understand why they're not being able to uh, have a disciplined attention span, why they can't learn at the level other children are learning at. It's because, based on the science, when you have lead poisoning, it stunts the development of the brain, and that's very real. And they have to say, this is an issue we need to deal with today. We can't put it off 
for five, ten years when we see the effects. We have to start preparing for our children's future today. The future belongs to those who prepare for it. And so at that rally, we're going to be talking about preparing for the future of our children and the legacy of our community. Mm. Uh, Benjamin Crump, civil rights attorney, author of the new book called Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Hey, I really appreciate your time. Up next, we're going to talk with the filmmaker behind Unlikely, a movie about second chances for people who don't complete their college degrees. It's going to screen for free on Wednesday, December 11th at Cinema Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So many students out are in their journey of higher education with the hope and expectation that they're going to graduate with a degree. However, financial obstacles, the unpredictability of life, and unforeseen circumstances can quickly throw all of those things off course. Some students do manage to get back on track, and that transition back to school is what we want to talk about with our next guest. Her name is Jay Fenderson, and she's the director of a documentary called Unlikely, which investigates America's college dropout crisis and the barriers that students face in their pursuit of a college degree and career. Jay Fenderson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So let's start with why you decided this was a documentary worth making. Well, I started my career right after college working in the admissions office at Columbia University. And while I was there, I realized just the inequities that existed between students uh, getting into college and the number of poor first-generation students of color that weren't either weren't attending Columbia or weren't graduating from college at the same rate as their wealthier white peers. And I think this is a discussion that is long overdue in higher education, and I thought, what better way to do that than through a documentary and following the lives of the students who are struggling to get to college and then through college. And and that is a really important distinction. The access question is not the same as the completion question when we're talking about uh, particularly first-gen students and students of color. Exactly. Yeah. I think for a long time we've focused on getting students to college. And then what, when we look at the data, we see that once students do get in, if you're first generation, if you're a student of color, your chances of finishing are dramatically lower than, uh, you know, wealthier white peers. And so, you know, that's an issue that really needs to be addressed. It's not just getting students uh, to a, a two- or four-year degree program. It's really getting them to the finish line. Mm-hmm. And so talk about the folks who you profile in this documentary. So one of, I think, the big misconceptions about college students today is that they're all 18 to 22-year-olds coming right out of high school and pursuing a degree. And Really, a lot of the students who are pursuing higher education are older students. They're students with parents. Um, they're veterans. They are uh, coming at college uh, maybe a few years after high school or even later in life. And so the needs and challenges and, and even strengths of those students are very different than what we think of as the uh, quote-unquote traditional college-age student. Mm-hmm. So we focused most of our time following um, you know, parents, a, a couple of mothers, a couple of students who are opportunity youth who had been stopped out for a few years or were disconnected from employment or school, as well as, you know, one student who went into college right after high school. And so the challenges are, are very different. Uh, they're, think, they're working jobs. They are, uh, they, some of them had student loan debt from a previous time at a university, And they're taking care of kids and uh, managing all of that while pursuing a degree. So Mm -hmm. it looks very different than I think what many Americans think of as uh, going to college. And and talk about the challenge of going back if you do drop out. For a lot of people, there are really big obstacles to rearranging your life to becoming a student again. Yeah, absolutely. So it's difficult, I think. 
you know, at any age to carve out time in your day to go sit in a classroom and study. I think for many people that is a luxury. And so the reality is that we all, you know, people need to have jobs and and sort of try to fit education into uh, that equation. And so, uh, you know, for many of these are students that are trying to fit education into their life. And I think, uh, you know, what institutions can do is help students, um, you know, fit, uh, you know, make education a little bit more flexible so that it's, uh, you know, much easier to navigate when you are having a job, when you're taking care of children, when you're trying to navigate getting students to or getting your, your children to dentist appointments and mm-hmm. managing child care. Uh, so Unlikely is going to be shown on Wednesday, December 11th at Cinema Detroit. Uh, tickets are free. I think you need to reser- reserve them, though. Um, talk about what Detroit audiences will gain from this film, Jay. I think what we want to show and, and what we've seen across the country is that we want to show that education at any age is possible. And the film is is not just a doomsday that, you know, it, there are all these problems in in, educa- in higher education that are insurmountable, but it's really highlighting the institutions, the programs, and the strengths of the students who are returning to college and and celebrating those um, uh, accomplishments that they've had and the institutions that are really moving the needle on student success. Okay, go see Unlikely on Wednesday, December 11th at Cinema Detroit at 7 p.m. I will be there as well, moderating a short discussion after the film. Jay Fenderson, director of Unlikely. It was great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. All right. That's going to do it for us this week. We expect to be preempted on Monday by impeachment hearings from Washington, but we hope to be back on Tuesday to talk about it with former U.S. attorney and University of Michigan law professor Barbara McQuaid. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.